0: This is Looking Forward, conversations about the future of work, brought to you by, brought to you by Herman Miller.
1: Hello and welcome to Looking Forward. I'm your host, Ryan Anderson. I'm Vice President of Global Research and Insights at Herman Miller. And today we're gonna be talking about remote working. You know, Herman Miller customers ask me often about how to support remote working for a variety of reasons. Sometimes only a small percentage of their workforce is remote. Other times organizations are thinking about hybrid working where they allow people to work from a variety of locations. And some really want to pursue more of a remote first strategy. And we're happy to help our customers with whatever strategy they think is best. So today I am so excited to have on one of the world's foremost experts on remote work, Darren Murph, head of remote work at GitLab. If your organization is thinking about what it takes to be better at supporting remote, then you'll love the insights that Darren shares with us today. Darren, thanks for being with us on the Looking Forward podcast.
0: How are you? Ryan? it's a pleasure. I'm doing well.
1: I am so pleased to have you join us today. I've known you for a while, but our, our listeners might not. Maybe you can give them just a little background on who you are and what you do.
0: Yeah, I'm Darren. Uh, first and foremost, I'm an adoptive dad. Uh, it's the uh, the blessing of my life to be that. Uh, from a professional standpoint, I'm the head of remote at GitLab. GitLab is 1,400 or so people in over 65 countries, completely officeless by design. So we were doing remote work long before COVID forced a lot of organizations into remote work and my career has spanned over 15 years across the spectrum of remote so i've seen and done almost everything co-located spaces hybrid spaces now and an all remote company it's been a fascinating couple of years as you can imagine
1: yeah absolutely <laughs> tell us a little bit more about what gitlab does i i think many people have heard of the organization but might not know on a daily basis what you all do
0: yeah gitlab is the devops platform so if you want to build great software and collaborate we make the platform for you so we've we help co-located teams, hybrid teams, all remote teams. A lot of what we do from an organizational design perspective, all remote forces us to do those things very intentionally with a great deal of rigor and very early in the stage of the company. But truth be told, our proven practices are just great business practices. We like to say that all remote forced us to do it, but these are things that all companies should consider. And Post-pandemic, I do think a lot of organizations are really taking a look at their culture, their values, their workflows, uh, and they're questioning those. They're pressure testing those. They're trying to make them more location agnostic. So GitLab is a fascinating place. The product that we build is what we use to collaborate uh, from, from team to team. But from an org design standpoint, it is truly, truly fascinating. We have Harvard case studies, NCED case studies. We've been in the Journal of Organizational Design. We largely run our people operation like the Git technology process, which is very, very nerdy. uh, But I do think it provides a glimpse into the future of how you can empower and enable a workforce with more nonlinear workdays and asynchronous workflows and really deconstructing a lot of the workplace norms that may have got us this far. I don't think they're uh, necessarily what will get us to the next big leap in The intersection between work and life. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to talk about some of
1: those things that really make for great remote working. But first, I just have to ask, you've become one of, if not the most cited experts on remote work in the world. What do you think? How did you get here? Why is this personally a passion for you?
0: Thanks for that. It has been an absolute joy to have this platform. Uh, Kate Lister, dear friend of mine at Global Workplace Analytics, she likes to say that we, as in this network of remote advocates, have been pushing this boulder up a hill for the better part of a few decades, and now it is bounding down the other side of the hill, uh, taking down forest as it goes. But look, it's amazing to have the world's attention. People are finally paying attention to living and working differently, and remote is the keyword that we all uh, focus on. But really, this revolves around inclusivity and empowering a workforce um, to live better lives and not relying on the rigidity uh, of the workplace. GitLab embraced this early on. I joined the company. We were about 700 or so people. And the executive team said, "Look, remote is the common thread across our entire organization. And we need to put some intentional leadership to make sure that it scales appropriately. You have to be very formal and intentional about informal communication and camaraderie and building trust and team bonding. You also have to put up uh, really solid guardrails and documented processes around how work happens and where work happens. And what's awesome about GitLab, one of the many things, is that we're an open core company and so we have a public handbook. So for companies who are have been thrust into remote and they're looking for a blueprint. We made one. One of the first tasks I had when I joined the company was to codify our remote work practices. I wrote down over 100,000 words on how we do this and we distilled that down into the remote playbook. It's an uh, easy to digest, downloadable PDF. It gives uh, a glance at all of our remote work fundamentals. And we've had over 100,000 people view that since we launched it. And a lot of leaders and a lot of companies have used that as their blueprint on making this remote transition. And it is absolutely, it's, it's a gift and a blessing to have a seat at that table and to, in some small way, be impacting history as it's written. And so if you're listening to this and you've been scratching your head trying to figure out how do we build a great remote company or how do we... Make Remote Culture Thrive. Check out allremote.info and you'll find all of our information. It has been done, done before. Uh, we provide a beacon for what it can look like when it's done well. And because we're an open core company, we're always looking for ways to do it better. Well, and beyond the resource you just mentioned, I've also
1: seen that you've created a Coursera course. You recently released a rubric uh, or a checklist of sorts in terms of figuring out whether or not you're supporting remote work well. There's really a whole host of resources that you've offered, isn't there?
0: Yeah, that's true. So we worked with Coursera for a course on remote team management. That was one thing that we heard early on in the pandemic is how do you manage a remote team? It's it's very different if you haven't done it before, and it requires a mindset shift more than anything. Going from command and control to servant leadership is really at the heart of that. So check out Coursera. It's a free course. You can, have a, uh, you can pay for an optional certificate at the end, but the actual course itself uh, is free. And yeah, we... <laughs> we reworked the Joel test. So anyone who's been in software development or code for any length of time is familiar with the Joel test. And one of my colleagues said, hey, wouldn't, wouldn't it be awesome if we did a Joel test, but for remote work, like just five or 10 minutes. If people just answer these basic questions, you'll know uh, if you're set up for success in a remote team. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And so we made that because look, reading 100,000 words about remote work requires a lot of effort. And so I thought, let's give people an easier on-ramp to this. Let's just make a test with 12 questions, yes or no questions. And within five or 10 minutes, you'll then know, is it worth reading those 100,000 additional words? I also want to say one other thing. When when the pandemic really bared down, uh, the first guide I wrote in the GitLab handbook following that was a guide on what not to do, because I recognized early on that leaders who were caught blindsided by this would be overwhelmed with the amount of new things that they really needed to think about and embrace and in in that case it would actually be easier to just focus on what not to do what mistakes not to make instead of focusing on all the things that you now needed to consider in this new working world awesome i know that i am bombarded with
1: articles on a daily basis that either say Um, remote working isn't sustainable or no one wants to ever visit an office again. It seems like the headlines are very extreme. Kind of viewing the world from the position you're in, what's your gut check on the state of remote work? Um, Whether or not it's being adopted, people's changing attitudes towards, uh, towards it. What do you think reality looks like these days?
0: There are so many realities happening all at once. And then layered on top of that is sensationalism and romanticism. So there are a lot of people who are saying, I can't wait to get back to the office, but it is a romanticized view of what the office was. Number one, the office that you return to, if you do return, will never be like the one that you remember. There's a good chance that half of the people you remember being there will opt not to come back. And there's also a chance that leadership will re-architect the spaces and think about the literal design of them in a different way. Also, it's really easy to think back at these small nuggets about office moments and forget the grueling commute to get there or a lot of the other things that went along with it uh, during a pandemic, romanticizing is something that um, it, it makes sense to, to kind of look back at that. So that that's one reality. And then there's this other reality of companies who are leaning into remote first and they're viewing this as an opportunity, a global permission slip, to question everything they used to know about work and do things differently. You don't even have to explain yourselves now. Everyone gets it. We're in an, uh, an amazing phase of experimentation. And there are quite a bit, uh, quite a lot of companies who are leaning into this. You see a lot of companies hiring heads of remote, putting dedicated leadership to kind of walk their organization through this. But there's a lot of things that aren't really being given enough voice. There are a lot of leaders who are underestimating the significance and the complexity of this change. For a lot of companies, they sent everyone home business continued to happen. And many of them may be lured into this false belief that, okay, we can just be a remote company now. We'll just label ourselves a remote company, put no additional effort or infrastructure building into it, and we'll be totally fine. And the reality is it has been passable. Crisis-induced work from home has been passable, but intentionally designed remote work is much more nuanced and much more complex. Learning and development is such a critical piece of this. You have to upskill people to make them grow, great remote managers, perhaps even an editorial class. People have to write more now. Documentation uh, is, is more of a requirement. It's a fundamental change in, in what people need to do work well. Uh, so there's there's a, a lot of things happening at, all, all at once. Um, but the way I look at it is it is change. It is an opportunity for change. And we need to be uh, as vocal as we can in framing it as opportunity versus fear. This is an enormous chance and opportunity to live life with freedoms that we didn't have before. And when I say we, I'm talking about knowledge work. Obviously, there are still some jobs that need on-site personnel. But for knowledge workers, this is a way to fundamentally look at the intersection of work and life differently. Re-architect your life. Redesign your life. Choose where you live uh, be more thoughtful about the spaces that you live and you work in. It's a, it's a fascinating time.
1: It is. And I know you've uh, already referenced some excellent resources that are available to our listeners. But if you were sitting having a cup of coffee or a beer with a friend who is CEO of a company and she said, all right, we, we dealt with the pandemic. We're either going to stay remote or we're going to have a portion of our workforce that spends a lot of their time remote. What are the key things we got to get right? What comes to mind?
0: The first thing is realizing that remote is not a place. Remote is an idea. It is about how work gets done, not necessarily where work gets done. So, said another way, all of the effort that you may be spending on architecting or re architecting a return to office plan should actually be going to a return to working differently plan. The point here is if you think about your values, your culture, how work gets done. And you pressure test those and say, hey, the way that we collaborate, does this work outside of the office? Do we have the right tools and technology? Do we have the right skills training? Do people actually know how to use this new uh, this new approach to collaboration? Or is the office still a crutch? Is there anything that is still tied to a physical space? Well, if you want to truly go remote first, that becomes your priority list on where and how to make changes. And I think this is incredibly liberating because if you do maintain some sort of real estate or headquarters as a company, it essentially creates a new lease on life for this space. You no longer have to make it the way you've had to make it in the past. If you enable work to get done anywhere, number one, you can get way more thoughtful and intentional about how your individuals are designing their spaces at home and wherever they travel to. But also you can rethink what space should mean uh, in terms of your company. And we are in the earliest of innings of companies really thinking that shift through. Yeah, well, that certainly resonates with me. And I'm
1: often asked by Herm Miller customers that are either thinking about going remote first or hybrid what this means for their offices. And that's one of the things I highlight a lot, which is the office was in many cases forced to become more and more generic to support all activities for all people, it can actually be much more purposeful. And some people are even surprised to hear that even companies very celebrated for being remote first, many of them still maintain corporate office space that's tuned towards very specific activities that are maybe less supported elsewhere. Um, I have to ask, uh, as we think about the benefits to employees in terms of their work-life balance, you introduced yourself as an adoptive dad. I've gotten to know you a little bit personally. I know that's really important to you, and I love that you share how impactful that is. Has remote working for you impacted your family in terms of your ability to be a parent, et cetera? Is there a link between your passion for adoption and your advocacy for
0: remote work? Absolutely. I tell people this story, but, you know, I look at What could happen on the other side of COVID, we may end up with tens of millions of people now with additional time, with new ways of working. They're unchained from the commutes that used to dictate their entire life. And you look at the orphan crisis and you think about all the children that need homes and you think if if just a small percentage of these tens of millions of people now look at this recaptured time as a way to integrate adoption or fostering into their family, We as a society could solve the orphan crisis in a matter of months with no additional infrastructure at all. That Mm. is incredibly powerful. And who knows how many other crises exist outside of my purview that could be similarly approached by giving people time back. And they're repurposing that time for something that is life-giving for them. This to me, the second and third order impact of remote, this should be the narrative. Of course, there's value in talking about the tactical approach to collaboration and asynchronous workflows and the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of how you actually work remotely. But the more important part here is to think about what we can unlock as a society. We only get a few short years on this planet each, even in the best of times. We only get one shot at this thing. Remote work enables every single one of us to have a much better shot at that life being something that means something to a lot more people. And it really can unlock generational impact. At GitLab, we celebrate boring solutions. And remote work in many ways feels like the most boring solution (laughs) to unlock another level of capacity for humanity. If you give people time back and you allow them to design their life, move to a place that matters to them so they can invest more in a community that matters to them, they're going to pour all of that loyalty back into their workplace for enabling that. That's what's that is really what excites me about the future. Mm-hmm. I love that it's a great aspirational view of the future. That win-win though is
1: contingent upon people actually using that reclaimed time for really um, purpose-filled things. I get a little concerned about the amount that I hear anecdotally and in the research that I see in terms of burnout people working extremely long hours, Um, what do you think uh, is the key to helping people that are now working more remotely not completely exhaust themselves and know when and how to turn the work
0: off? So the key here is build the waterway. And I'd like to explain what I mean by that. So before COVID, the organization was a railway and the workers were in rail cars. So you put rail cars on a railway, things work pretty well. COVID comes along, knocks all of the rail cars off. Now everyone's working in their individual boat. So if you put a boat on a railway, you might could stick an oar down in the ground far enough and kind of grind your way and make it move inch by inch, but it's certainly not ideal. But if organizations were to look at that infrastructure and replace their railway with a waterway, now all of a sudden... This becomes much more effortless, much more seamless. So what I'm saying here is while individual virtual boundaries are certainly important, they are significantly limited by the organization itself. If the organization itself does not build the infrastructure to allow people to avoid burnout, to allow people to set boundaries, to allow people to work more asynchronously and rid their schedules of back-to-back Zoom fatigue meetings, there's only so much an individual can do. The infrastructure, the organization, the highest burden actually falls on the organization to set people up for success. And this goes back to an earlier point where a lot of organizations are underestimating the nuance and complexity on what is expected of them to get this right, to empower a generation of people to not be burned out because they're working inefficiently. Well, let's dive a little
1: bit on the discussion between synchronous and asynchronous working and communication. It's a topic that I'm really passionate about. In fact, when the pandemic hit and we started producing some more resources, we we cut a little video on the need to operate more asynchronously back maybe in June or July of 2020. And I found quickly that most of the people that I shared it with were not ready to have that conversation. (laughs) In fact, they may have been getting their heads around it, but in terms of the implications, they weren't really Ready to unpack what the negative effects of being in meetings all the time really, for the most part, really look like. Give us a little deeper dive on um, synchronous versus asynchronous and how to achieve the right balance.
0: Yeah, so even you said versus in between the two, but it really starts by acknowledging that synchronous and asynchronous are two tools in a workplace toolbox just like a wrench and a screwdriver. That doesn't make one inherently better than the other, but if you are on a complex job at some point, you'll probably need both of those. Mm-hmm. So the real nuance here is understanding when to utilize each one. The, the traditional workplace has massively emphasized synchronous moments to the point where most people have little to no asynchronous fluency at all. And many organizations have no infrastructure set up to truly enable work to be moved forward in an asynchronous fashion. So two common mistakes here. One is just trying to adopt an asynchronous tool without having the organizational infrastructure to support it. That is a quick way for someone to raise their hand and say, hey, async doesn't work for us. The second is to just assume that you can pivot everything that was synchronous to asynchronous and quote cold turkey this thing, but the truth is a journey of iteration is a much more digestible approach. Perhaps you reduce your recurring meeting load by 20% every quarter, and then after a year, you have something really significant, but along the way, it wasn't so drastic that you risk rejection or people not understanding uh, this move to a different way of working. Certain industries, certain departments within companies are more or less amenable to shifting a lot of their workflows to the uh, asynchronous style. But at its core, you can have an easy litmus test on this, which is, how can I move a piece of work forward without commandeering someone else's time? And in fact, at GitLab, if you look at our values, our bias for asynchronous workflows is actually nested under our diversity, inclusion, and belonging value, not under something like results or efficiency. And the reason for that is as a leader, you can get a lot more buy-in around async if you frame it as a matter of respect. If you can move a piece of work forward without commandeering 30 or 50 minutes of someone's day, it's more respectful. That gives them the ability to dictate and control how they spend that time, whether that's resting, calling a significant other, uh, spending time with their family, doing deep work. Anything that matters to them, if you enable them to do that at scale across an organization, you can create a really powerful
1: network effect. Well, and I think most organizations, even if they're just using Microsoft Teams, other common platforms have access to some sort of asynchronous options, you know, using a channel, using a chat, even email, although it's not the greatest tool in the world is asynchronous, but so many organizations default to video or audio meetings all day long. And I know many are using remote to try to access better talent around the world, but around the world implies different time zones and having people locked up on meetings throughout their dinner or or while they're meant to be sleeping isn't helpful. Do you have a sense of whose job would it be in an organization, maybe an organization that doesn't have a head of remote to actually raise their hand and say, maybe we limit the number of meetings, let's start using these other tools more effectively?
0: Yeah, you could put it anywhere. I wouldn't focus so much on what department it lives in. But if you're a leader and you can't really justify uh, hiring or appointing a dedicated leader, I would say ask people to raise their hands. Chances are really high that you have a handful of closet remoters that never really volunteered the fact that they loved flexible work and you got to remember that proximity bias used to be a career killer like only in the last 18 months has been has this been something that is seen as a skill it used to be something you would actively hide and that's a whole other conversation but ask people to raise their hands what I've seen be really successful is pilot groups you'll generally find people who are really excited about this and they're okay with walking through a lot of two-way doors and experimenting two-way doors and you walk through the door if you don't like what you find you walk back out with more knowledge no harm, no foul. You can embrace this in a pilot or experiment group and then just have retrospectives where you share outputs like, hey, we tried this new tool for a month. It replaced these types of meetings for a month. This was our key learning. That could be something like a one pager that you put in a month of work and you give a one pager out to the executive team and then other groups could see that and say, hey, that's something that we want to try. Don't be afraid to start small. Uh, The truth is (laughs) a remote first transition It is a long journey. If it is not something that was native, there will be a lot of experimentation. It's okay to start small. It's okay to stand up a company handbook that is really nothing more than an FAQ or a holding place for your policies. Start somewhere. It all has a compounding interest effect. The sooner you start, uh, the quicker you can uh, weave remote fluency and remote muscle into the organization.
1: Well, that reminder of the journey is a good one. And I get a chance to talk a lot with organizations that have brought HR and real estate, maybe legal, finance, others to um, to a common group that are thinking about workplace changes. But the idea of piloting remote, particularly tapping into people, and there's almost always someone who's really been doing remote for a long time and allowing the rest of the organization to learn from them is a great idea. And I don't hear stories about that near as much. So great suggestion.
0: Yeah. Thanks for that. And look, it takes a lot of vulnerability from a leader to do something like that. I have often heard that remote ways of collaborating or the remote water cooler, it just doesn't live up to the way we used to do it, but that's because you haven't really given it a fair shot. There's been an amazing explosion of remote-first tools in 2020 and 2021 that are purpose-built for new ways of working. And so if you're thinking back, like, it doesn't work for us, or it used to work this, this other way, the point here isn't to virtually recreate the old way of doing things. The point here is to challenge all of those notions and ask, how can we do this better? on the other side of this? How can we do this more effectively and more efficiently and spend less time on it, and repurpose more time for different ways of working? That's really what people are looking for. I mean, you see in the news, the great resignation, people are shifting jobs like never before. And a lot of that is because leaders have not yet given a vision of what the future looks like, or they just haven't enabled people to contribute uh, to whatever that vision looks like. This is an amazing opportunity to do it, uh, and you'll find a lot of people that want to be tailwinds in that. Well, let's
1: pick up on one other specific suggestion you've mentioned a couple of times. And I've heard you talk about this topic before uh, and it's documentation. And as somebody who's rather right-brained and not very process-oriented, there's probably no word that makes me want to run the other way as much as documentation. Um, I know this is an important topic for you. uh, And I, I think it'd be worth unpacking a little bit what that really means and why it's so important.
0: Yeah, if rigorous documentation scares you, Imagine working in a place that writes down nothing. That is unequivocally far more terrifying. And I say that tongue-in-cheek to some degree, but I I do want to explain that term. Uh, at, At GitLab, we actually do our best to not reference that term. We use handbook first. And the reason we do that is it fixates our process and our policy on the company handbook because documentation without taxonomy and documentation without codification is just textual chaos, which is no better than verbal chaos or playing meeting tag. It's just a different form of that. And for a lot of companies, their initial reaction is, writing things down makes me go slower. And I have two responses to that. One, it's okay to go slow, to go faster. And the second point here is, it's all about your time perspective if you look at your day in 30 to 60 minute chunks, then pausing for even five or 10 minutes of that does seem more inefficient. It does make you go slower in the moment. But if you think of the timescale of a week or a month or a year, it starts to look very different. On the heels of this podcast, I'm going to Hawaii for two and a half weeks to celebrate my 15 year wedding anniversary. (laughs) And frankly, getting ready for this trip is not anxiety inducing at all because I've spent two years writing my brain down into the handbook, scaling my own knowledge. And so I'm leaving my team in great hands because I've spent two years writing that down. So I feel very comfortable in being able to go and truly disconnect because all of the key processes to do our job is written down. And this is the kind of thing that documentation, when done well, can really unlock, but it does require you to pause and start the behavior and start the process and weaving that into a culture that was not a documentation culture before is a significant hurdle. And this goes back to why you should hire a head of remote. This is an amazing amount of change and you need someone there to be the chief storyteller of why something like this should be embraced. If you just try to implement widespread documentation as a policy it will be seen as a mandate and met with a huge amount of resistance. If you implement this with the story of here's how your life can get better. Here's how you can actually take vacation. Here's how you can experience less burnout. Well, now this feels like purpose and you will get a lot more buy-in. All right. You've
1: won me over and I'm sure you've pleased many of the more process focused people that may in fact be most concerned about what the transition from more co-located to long-term remote might look like. I'm also aware of the fact that I believe you are a Guinness record holder for writing uh, or something along those lines, correct? What's the backstory?
0: That is true. I hold the Guinness world record as the planet's most prolific professional blogger. So we have to go a bit back in time for this one. I was managing editor at Engadget. If you have read about consumer technology in the last 10 or 20 years, you have probably landed on Engadget. So over a four-year period, I published an article. On average, once every two hours, 24-7, 365 for four oh consecutive Years. So when the record was bestowed, it was uh, over 17,000 articles, more than 6 million words in a four year span. And I, I'll say some little, some inside baseball here. It's really hard to get a Guinness World Record. One of my colleagues actually forced me to sit down and apply for this record, which I thought was going directly in the digital trash. Because if you go to apply for this record, at the time they had no editorial records. So as I'm filling this online form out, it's just like other and then another drop down other and then another drop down other other. And then eventually they're like, all right, look, here's a box. Just tell us what record you set. And it was at that point that I thought no one's ever going to read this. Turns out they did read it and they put a large team to essentially scour the internet to try to see if anyone, any professional writer had published more over that period of time. And it took about six months. Uh, And after six months, a plaque from London arrived in the mail.
1: Incredible. Well, my goodness who better to teach us about documentation than the world record holder for (laughs) for most number of blog posts in that amount of time. By the way, I was a frequent, I was and and still occasionally am a frequent uh, lover of technology blogs. So thank you for your work there. Uh, I want to transition for a moment uh, before we end up wrapping here soon, but transition for a moment in terms of home, work, place. Uh, so many of our listeners likely are people that think about our physical working environment. Um, I love that you said earlier that remote isn't a place, it's how work gets done. But what are your own reflections in terms of your um, physical work environment or the role of the the physical environment in terms of supporting health and productivity?
0: It is really amazing how much space matters, how much ergonomics matter, how much a familiarity with a setup matters. Um, I've really embraced documentation even at my home workspace. Uh, I got an adjustable standing desk four or six months ago, and I'm still experimenting with the ratio of, of sit versus stand, but it has just been something that I've been fine tuning and tweaking. And I realized every time I'm outside of the space, I can feel the productivity drop. Like I got to get back to mission control. <laughs> and I do have a pretty okay travel setup. Thankfully, GitLab has a lot of digital nomads. And so I have no shortage of amazing experts to tap on uh, what, are, what are all the uh, interesting gizmos to really um, uh, build out your, your mobile setup. But for a lot of companies who have transitioned to this, their workers went from well-defined, well-thought-out workspaces in a corporate setting to a home that they probably did not purchase thinking that they would be working eight-plus hours a day in it. That is a drastic, drastic change at gitlab we enable people to outfit their home workspaces and that's a that's a really a, a real gift and a real blessing for companies that do not have this i cannot encourage you enough to really think about it really consider it it is vital to ensure that people have great home workspaces uh, or if they don't feel comfortable working from home, support third spaces, whether that's a WeWork or a Cody or a communal space. I mean, technology is solving this product market fit is coming for uh, venues like this. And these venues will be really intentional, uh, I think, and I hope about setting people up for success. Yeah. yep, We are definitely seeing
1: uh, a heightened awareness of just how critical those environments are. and um, And I appreciate you sharing that. By the way, years ago, I got a chance to sit with a group of ergonomists from around North America, specifically just to talk about the ratios of sitting and standing. And I can tell you among the the great human factors, ergonomic leaders, uh, there was very little agreement. (laughs) So your own documentation and experimentation is important. Um, Sometimes we'll say your next posture is the best posture. It's it's the movement, arguably, that's more important than anything else. Well, um, I want to start to bring this to a close. You've already given us a wonderful vision of how remote working can impact our societies. Let's talk just a little bit um, as we close for the business leaders out there, the CEOs, the CHROs, chief strategy officers, uh, chief finance officers. As they think about supporting more remote working, even if it's just a small amount, what do you think the long-term benefits um are for them and what might a brighter future hold if it's embraced?
0: Yeah, I'll give you a few things here. One, it helps you create a more inclusive and diverse work environment. You can inject a lot of geographic diversity into your team if you are hiring for more than just a commutable distance to your headquarters. And it's really fascinating to see what kind of cultural impact that has both in product and and, uh, in terms of, of values. Um, So geographic diversity is a big one. Inclusivity is a big one. Remote first forces you to use tools that enable people to contribute in the same size font. So if you've had a loudest voice in the room issue, really that goes away with remote first. You can really equalize the playing field. And I would say for leaders, look at a lot of the voices that you may not have heard uh, pre-COVID. A lot of them could be much stronger now. And that's... uh, that's certainly a benefit. And the third is you fundamentally de-risk your business. I mean, think about it. If you can decouple the results that you drive from physical geography, you're simply more resilient. And so if you convert workflows so that they are location agnostic, and you empower people to do great work from whatever space they want to, your business is set up to be more resilient. Um, There will likely be another crisis that comes. It's one thing after another. And this is a moment to say, you know what, we're, we're building for the future. We want to be resilient and we want to empower people to do their best work wherever we can legally support them. Awesome. Well, my friend, thank you so much for spending
1: this time. Um, you've been a fantastic insights collaborator with Herm Miller and we appreciate it. Congrats upon your anniversary and I hope the anniversary trip is amazing. We appreciate you spending time with uh, me and our listeners before you go.
0: Mahalo, my friend. Thank you for having me.